This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Stark. Uh, I'm joined here with uh, Delicious Tacos. He's known as a blogger and a novelist, uh, and his latest book was uh, Savage uh, Spear of the Unicorn, and that came out earlier this year. Uh, Delicious Tacos, it's uh, great speaking with you. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's always weird to hear myself introduced as Delicious Tacos. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a ridiculous fake name. It's a ridiculous person to be. And it's always funny to hear someone else say it out loud. But thank you for having me. And I'm also joined here with Matt. What's yep, up, Matt? Good to be here. How's it going? So I don't really know anything about uh, about y'all's podcast, except I tuned in for the last episode, and you guys said nice things about me. So, I, that, Oh, well, the Welbeck show, right. Very pleased, yes. You called me the California Welbeck, which is praise <laughs> that I probably don't deserve, but I'll take it. Yeah, well, Robert actually said I simped to you on the last podcast, but it seems like uh, maybe it's paying off by getting you. Yeah, it's working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never I never listen to podcasts, and um, not because they're bad or anything. I just have too much other horse shit to do. But, uh, you know, it's I heard a little bit of your last one. It sounded interesting. It's Look, it's interesting to hear people talking about books and literature. Nobody thinks about that shit anymore. So it's nice to discuss something that isn't uh, Donald Trump or you know, football, money. Yeah, for sure. I find it's really good to do a lot of these more literary or artistic-oriented shows because you can talk about all the all the important stuff that, in theory, politics is supposed to address without yeah. all the baggage, which hopefully we'll have a conversation like that today because I think your work's a good example of that, too. There's no need to be nervous because no one's, no one's listening to book podcasts. <laughs> like, no, nobody <laughs> reads. Can you give some like background information about your uh, history uh, in blogging before sure. your, fir- so, your your first novel, uh, your debut novel, finally some good news that came out in 2018. So were yeah. you a blogger prior to that? Yeah. So uh, my website is deliciousTacos.com. I still am a blogger. I'm probably the last person still doing it. Uh, I have uh, my first book. So I started that blog in 2012. It's been almost, uh, it's about to, it's, this is its ninth year, which is fucked up to think about. Before that, I had another blog that I did for about five years. Um, my first book was called Hot Naked Tits. It was a little ebook that came out in 2015. My first collection was called The Pussy. I'm saying the names of these books so that the listeners will go uh, buy them immediately. That's uh, actually the, pussy the only by one that, uh, Matt's actually read most of your work. I've only read The Pussy, and I'm just starting mm-hmm. that, so I read uh, two chapters the one where you're talking about the one about teenagers and then the one about wage slavery, those two chapters I've read. 
There's a lot of there's a lot of chapters about fucking teenagers and wage slavery. That you're going to find that, that those are recurring themes in the book. Also, and uh, you know, my my most popular book is finally some good news, which is my first novel. It's about the end of the world. My new book is Savage Spear of the Unicorn. Um, but if people don't want to listen, you know, buy 15 books at once, go to my website deliciousTacos.com. The shit is free. You can get an idea of whether you like me or not, and then figure it out from there before you cough up your hard-earned wage slaving cash. <laughs> Although I saw earlier, you are having a sale right now until Christmas, right? 60% off? Yeah, that's right. So the Kindle books are $3 until Christmas. Nice. And uh, I'm doing that because I want to hit a certain amount of books sold by the end of this year. And then after that, I'm not going to put them on sale for a long time. I'm done, like, shilling and pumping and obsessing over my book sales and my page views. And my yeah, I bought books. The Pussy when you were doing this the $1 sale. $1 Pussy is right, always right. popular. <laughs> I've sold many thousands of those $1 pussies. It's cool to do, I guess. It would be nice if I could make a living from my books. I'm I'm not doing that. I'm, But I make a decent amount of money from them. However, it's stressful to be one's own marketing department and have to constantly pump it on Twitter. I know people have to be getting sick of it because I'm putting them on sale constantly, begging people for retweets. And I think what I'd like to do for the next year is just concentrate on my new book that I'm working on and just let my sales go in the toilet. I do have a job that makes me money, so I'm going to let my job do the money and uh, not stress so much over shilling $1 pussy. Uh, so do you use uh, do you self-publish these or do you have a yes. publisher? Yeah, I don't think any publisher would publish my books. Maybe if I sell enough through self-publishing, but I just assumed when I started out that no publisher would touch me with a 10-foot pole. In retrospect, it was a good decision because you get to keep a lot more of the money when you self-publish. You also get to put your books out immediately. There's no long bureaucratic process. You also don't have to deal with an editor. Maybe I could use an editor, but I can't conceive of an editor that I would that I would like to be fucking with my prose. So it's not very prestigious. I think I've said before, like self-publishing is like having herpes. There's less and less of a stigma. But it's still a stigma, and so if Random House came calling, I would certainly take their call. But nobody buys books like mine. Books are for women in general. Like, every popular book has a pink cover and is about women living in New York, um, or it's some genre shit. So if I were a publisher, I wouldn't sell my books either, so it works out. Yeah, no, I mean, that's very much my impression is what you said. I mean, books are mostly uh, marketed towards women, and if not women, then uh, a certain kind of bourgeois liberal class of men. It's it's hyper-specific kind of what, especially fiction, uh, is catered to. It, it's almost its own genre, and it, yeah. people coming so, out of MFA programs. I picked up this book called, um, I forget what it's fucking called, uh, Severance by Ling Ma, right? This is a one of the so this book came out the same time as my book. Finally, some good news. It's also about the end of the world. It's also about an office worker that experiences the end of the world. And on the cover of this book, there they had to squish it down into six point font for all the awards and acclaim that this book got from every prestigious jerk off on the planet, saying this is the great you know New Yorker. This is the greatest book of all time. New York Times. This is a work of of genius. The apotheosis of brilliance. Blah 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 blah. NPR and it's got a pink cover and it's by a woman 
and I was excited to read it because I would always see it whenever I put whenever finally some good news would get back on the Amazon bestseller list like this book would always be beating it because it's so popular and I thought this is going to be great I'm going to read a book that is like things that I think about all the time but it's from a woman's perspective it's going to be different and obviously it's a brilliant great book because it got all these awards and it's just it's okay it's a little prissy and it's a slight bore and it's Remember the movie Sideways? Oh, yeah, yeah, about the... So, re- so Sideways, Sideways was the most critically acclaimed film of all time. It's about an ugly, fat, bald nerd who's obsessed with something that nobody cares about and is very passionate about it. It's his journey as a bitter jerk-off to fall in love with a woman that's much more attractive than him and be valued for his stupid niche knowledge. And it's the most popular you know it's the most acclaimed film of all time because it's about what exactly every movie critic was at the time and so this ling ma book is about exactly what every publishing person is which is someone living a weaker version of the tiny furniture lifestyle that that lena dunham movie somebody living in brooklyn fucking a lot of guys sort of semi cares about their boyfriend has a job in publishing for Christ's sake. And that's why the, you know, there, there, it is clickish, but at the same time, what well, I'm not in a position to really judge because obviously like, I'm just bitter that nobody's offering me a publishing deal. One of my favorite authors is Sam Pink. I don't know if you guys have read any Sam Pink, but he, uh, he doesn't make a living off it. So a lot of his books, are about his side jobs working as a banquet hall waiter in the fucking Michigan Upper Peninsula. And he sells a lot more books than me. His, frankly, his books are a lot better than mine. He has a back catalog of 20 of them, and he's enormously acclaimed, does interviews constantly, has people jerking him off constantly, and is the rare case where this said jerking off is justified. And he doesn't make a living off the fucking books. It's it's hard to do. That, but that's one of the reasons why books are still a legitimate art form a lot of the time. Because television had a few great series, but most of it is horseshit. Movies are mostly horseshit. And it's because you can make money doing those things, so it attracts the sort of people that want to make money. Uh, books have no material reward on this earth. You might be remembered for them after you die living you know having lived an impoverished lonely self-torturing life so when people really have something to say they often do so in a book have you ever had any issues with uh, censorship and are you more is it more what's a greater concern uh the obscenity based censorship or political based it's a good question you know i did password protect about 225 posts on my blog after i got doxxed at my work so I've never had censorship where Twitter has suspended me or WordPress has suspended my blog or Amazon has start, stopped carrying my books. I'm sort of pre-censored. I just assumed that, you know, that's the reason that I'm anonymous. That's the reason that I don't show face is because even though the things that I say are not evil, uh, they certainly make me unemployable in any respectable industry forever if people know my real name and my face and can associate it with my work. So... Have I been censored? No, but but I, I mean I've password protected a bunch of posts and I'm anonymous. I don't show my fa- if I was going by my real name, could I say the things that I say? 
Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, someday, someday we'll fucking find out because it is weird to keep calling myself delicious tacos. <laughs> yeah, like uh, guilt by association. Like it's like all that nonsense leads to uh, misinterpretation of people based on who they're associated with. Sure. And uh, thing is, like you're not nec- you're not at all like right wing. You would no. say like relatively moderate to liberal. You did so. You did support like Bernie Sanders. And I was a Sanders supporter, yeah. yeah but so I also how, I mean, like, how would you I broadly? Like, uh, uh, are they maybe so, call you like a Bernie bro? But how would you kind of broadly present yourself to like normies? Okay, I don't give a fuck about politics at all. So my beliefs themselves are very extreme in the directions that they point. But the the degree to which I'm passionate about those beliefs is essentially zero. So I would like to see a greatly expanded welfare state. I believe in gun rights. Uh, I believe that most things should be legal. Prostitution and drugs should be legal, and prostitution should, in fact, be encouraged and perhaps in some cases mandated. Um, But I don't really care. Like, I've given up hope that society is going to get any better. I think America is a place that ultimately economically doesn't give a shit about its citizens, and to some extent, nor should it, because its citizens are fat bums. So... I think society is going to do what it's going to do. It's like complaining about the weather or it's like being re- people are really into Trump the way they're really into sports. And, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I, out here where I am. So there, there, I have this thing. So a lot of right wing people that, you know, are, are my friends online. A lot of very far right wing people, including people with really, uh, you know, the people that are the, that hold the beliefs that people are, you know, that the media is actually paranoid about. Um, and then people that I know in real life are super, super, they're not super liberal politically, but they're super anti-Trump. They're super, just anything Trump does causes them to get the vapors. And they can never admit that he's ever done anything good. And they're, you know, they're, it's or, orange man bad. I mean, it's, look, it's even it's boring to even talk about the opposition to Trump. I'm really looking forward to his being gone, not because he's done a bad job as president or really done anything as president, but because I'm fucking tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of hearing about it from both sides. Look, I, a lot of my family is into Trump, and then a lot of my family is super liberal. So I love and respect people that hold both sets of beliefs. It doesn't really matter. And if shit really hits the fan, I'm moving in with my Trump-supporting cousin, and we're going to fucking have a compound. But how big of a theme is uh, economics, wage slavery, and a critique of capitalism in your work? Well, is it a critique of capitalism? That sounds too nerdy and uh, prissy to me. I hate working, and I've worked like a dog since I was 14 years old, with most of that time with very little to show for it. So I resent working, and I resent uh, fucking having to work. I was cleaning toilets while I was going to fancy prep school. It made me sick, and you know it still makes me sick to think about now. Is it a critique of the system? I don't know that a better system is possible. I also now have a bunch of money, so I don't want capitalism to collapse. Now I think the system is great, and... Uh, I hope that the poor continue to suffer so that my stocks can increase. Yeah, you were talking about how it's impossible to make a living as a writer. What kind of uh, economic – do you have any thoughts on overall like the economics of the arts and uh, the, how the system works? And I don't know if well, you have a solution. 
We're in the we're in the podcast era now, so people are doing these subscription podcasts and making tons of money. I do think that literature is probably suffering. Not to, tr- I mean, you guys are doing it. You know, I'm sure a fine podcast, but in general, like people people who would be or who might be writing and blogging are instead doing podcasts because they're much more popular. They make a lot more money. And uh, I think we're losing some literacy from the scene because of that. I also, you know, there, but people make tons of money because, and here's why it's because it's like, remember, I don't know how old you guys are, but when I was a kid, there were ads in the back of magazines for get, you know, get 10 records for a penny. It was like the Atlantic yeah. records club and oh, you yeah. get like a, a Led Zeppelin record and a bunch of other shit for a penny. And the reason for that is because then you're locked into some subscription where you're getting charged $10 a month in perpetuity to get to receive fucking grand funk railroads, you know, collected B sides. And that's what these subscription podcasts are. Like, it's just, it's people making money off people forgetting to cancel their subscriptions. Not even this podcast, but even like uh, Spotify and and streaming services. That's kind of a big part of the way people consume uh, art and media is, is through these, this subscription, you know, pay, pay X amount and have, you know, and have everything for a month. And then you just got to keep paying. Yeah. seems like that's the economic direction. It's like, that was one of the one of the most common questions I used to get. So I used I get I would get two questions. Number one is why don't you write X Y Z X Y Z being uh, horror erotica? Why don't you write a real you know or some manosphere horseshit? And it's because the, I can't write things that I don't believe. And then the other thing that people would ask me is why don't you do a podcast? And it's because I'm not especially good at it, and I don't have a lot to say in this format. Um, I enjoy writing. Uh, you know, look, the audience can judge for themselves, but listen to me. I sound like a fucking dork, and it's not. I'm not the kind of person that can carry a whole conversation. My po- the podcasts that I'm on really depend on the host and the questions that the host asks. And so, for me to talk blankly into a microphone for a certain amount of time and charge people money for it just doesn't appeal to me. But if I get fired from my job, we'll see. So we're all, like, all three of us are based in California, and uh-huh. uh, you live in L.A., and yeah. uh, how long have you lived in L.A.? What drew you to the city, and what do you think about people in kind of our political sphere who always like to kind of, uh, who like trash to shit, yeah, they like to trash California? Yeah. What initially uh, drew you here? Yeah, so here, so people trash California because they think that I somehow support Gavin Newsom, who's a disgusting imp. I don't want to say like if I to- said my true feelings about Gavin Newsom, I would be arrested. <laughs> it is California is not its politics, and it's a geographically beautiful place. It's an ethnically diverse place in the best way. It's obviously the weather is fucking gorgeous, and I know that's a cliche to say, but when I was in Thailand experiencing monsoons i was in you know tropical paradises and you get depressed because it's fucking cloudy all the time you're in a tropical paradise and it's fucking cloudy constantly it's beautiful it's sunny people are nice the women are very difficult the california probably has the worst women in the world and you know generally but the uh just the natural beauty here is amazing the wildlife is amazing the birds are amazing it's also staggeringly expensive a house in my neighborhood costs about seven or eight hundred thousand dollars um back when i was looking at buying a house the interest rates were mortgage interest rates were four point five percent like even in the ghetto parts of la like everything starts at half a million yes then that's uh 
that's partly because African-American people have been driven out of L.A. and those areas are all Mexican now. So people are less scared of black people and want to go gentrify it. And uh, so, yeah, so those houses are half a million bucks. And then again, if you pay, if you're paying four point five percent interest, I understand that it's lower now. But at that time, when I was looking a 30 year loan, you're paying you borrow five hundred thousand dollars and you're paying back that plus four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in interest. Um, it's absurd. And you think that it's unsustainable. You keep waiting for it to crash. The whole city is a homeless encampment. It looks like fucking Thunderdome out there. I I don't happen to be scared of it. I'm not scared of homeless people, but you know, a few you know a few hundred yards from my house, there's encampments and tents and uh, Same, crazy yeah. cra- crazy meth heads with for some reason ten bicycles and fifteen <laughs> laptops in their tent, and it's crazy. But it's it's just fun, and it's 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 a significant place. It's a culturally meaningful place. It looks like where all the movies are. It's where Charles Bukowski was. It's where, it's where, you know, Raymond Chandler was. It's, there's just, it's an important and significant place. I also like that it's not New York. So it's significant enough, but you can still be close to birds, nature and wildlife here. So LA is a beautiful place. However, I'm 44 years old. My sperm is probably already defective. I may never get married and may never have kids because I lived in L.A. so long because it's really impossible to do here. And it's because, again, the women here are mostly subhuman garbage. The economic issues you're talking about yeah. don't, definitely don't make it easy to have uh, kids um, or a family. I mean, we all have very similar thoughts, um, I think. There, despite all the issues, and a lot of them are economic in terms of being able to buy a house and stuff, it it is always an interesting place to live. And yeah, it's not New York. Um, yeah, I've been pretty happy here. I'm looking at the sunset out my window right now over a mountain, beautiful trees waving. It's December. It was 65 degrees out today. Beautiful birds in my yard. I'm happy. If I can go somewhere and there's nice birds to look at, I'm happy. Oh, yeah, you are an avid uh, bird watcher. That's right. Is it just sort of uh, specifically... Like studying birds, or you just enjoy nature in general? I like nature in general, and the thing about bird watching is that you can't always go somewhere and see an elk, right? You can't always go somewhere and see a wolf, but wherever you are on this planet, there are beautiful, interesting birds right near you, right outside your window to look at doing interesting things. So that's true in New York City, that's certainly true in L.A. What have you noticed as like the recent trends that you talk about the homeless and as far as like post COVID, like the, there's this talk of a massive exodus out of LA, out of California. Have you really been noticing a dramatic change after no, COVID not or at is all. it overblown? There's no exodus out of LA. There's an exodus out of San Francisco, which really you know, which certainly deserves an exodus. LA I have not seen uh home prices going down at all so there's not there's not a lack of demand for homes i think that's partially because it's you know two percent interest rates now but people aren't leaving la la is not a is not a company town people think it's a show business town which it kind of is but there's the the fucking two giant ports here so it's never going to economically shut down this is where goods and goods come from asia they arrive in los angeles so and there's all there's always tons of people immigrating here from Mexico. There's not enough space for everybody still. And obviously, there you know, yeah, as evidenced by the fact that people live in tents instead of choosing to leave and go somewhere else. 
They live in Coleman pup tents along the river and along the freeway because it's just nice and easy to live here. You said if they do leave, it's more likely to Orange County than out of the state altogether. I think that that's speculation, I think, because I used to live in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh was a steel, booming steel town, and then the urban center sort of collapsed into a sort of stereotypical urban center, and there was this ring of suburbs. I used to, I had a job going door-to-door soliciting political donations for left-wing groups. So we would go out to these suburbs that were always named after an animal, be like Raccoon Township, Fox Chapel, all these places. And wealthy, sort of prosperous Republican square-jawed men whose ancestors used to work in the steel steel industry moved out to these little towns ringing around the city, and they sent their kids to nice schools. It was white people, and uh, it looked like 1950s America out there, and maybe the same thing will happen with L.A. Yeah, you have it a little bit, uh, I would say Valencia, if you've been there, near Santa Clarita, has a little bit of that vibe. It's a very kind of white and old-time. Actually, oh, yeah. Valencia, Santa Clarita area, like Thousand Oaks and Ventura County, and then yeah, Orange also County too. Empire yeah, the other big, the other place I could see getting a huge wave of people if whatever happens would be just it already is happening. Inland Empire is already one of the fastest. But this thing is, Inland Empire is kind of looked down upon as kind of pro. And yeah, what does it have to record? I mean, Inland Empire is a cheaper place to go if you work in Los Angeles. I've spent a lot of time there, and I like it out there, but, yeah, it is kind of a shithole. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. we took, we took a, like, a recently, we took a road trip to the Mojave Desert and Death Valley, and we had, we had dinner in Claremont, which is a college town, which is, like, the one kind of swipple upscale part of the Inland Empire. Were you uh, checking out the Claremont Institute? <laughs> were, you, were you there No, no we the, were just the, there briefly, briefly for, for dinner, and it's pretty de- it was pretty deserted. It's, uh... Yeah, I used to work out there. I would take the train to work out there. It's a it's a fascinating place. That's all. That's where all the African American people went that got booted out of Compton by Mexicans. Oh no, think. no, Claremont a, is upscale. You're not, probably thinking of Palmdale. Yeah, not not Claremont in particular, but I mean the Inland Empire. Yeah, Inland Empire, probably, Empire like in Ontario, Rancho, oh, yeah. Like Redlands, and then way out like upwards. far as far out yeah. as like uh, places like Victorville in the in the desert. Yeah. So yeah. as far Boondocks, as like the groups, the demographic groups you've socialized with, and the women in LA you've dated, uh, have you are you exposed to basically all groups, or is it one particular like demographic niche in LA? I fuck them all. Oh yeah. What is your like? What would your general like your general assessment be? Of Los Angeles women, I mean, it, it used to be great. Now it's awful, and it's hard to tell if that's because I'm 44 years old and I'm a lecherous old man trying to date younger women. But I really do think that. I think the co- whatever covenant there was between men and women in civilization is gone, and we are in a pussy warlord period. Well, here's a and, question, then. Uh, in terms of that, because we did have that in the notes to talk about that, that notion as a theme that's both in your and Welbeck's work. Um, yes. as great as L.A. is, and I really do like living here, um, do, would you say, is there an element to which... Uh, in, in as far as there, there is a lack of covenant between the sexes, is L.A. kind of at the forefront of that? I believe that Los Angeles is the is now the worst pussy city in the world, um, worse than San Francisco. I've not been to Toronto, and that's so that's a. I say this with a large blind spot, but 
it is genuinely impossible now to have a relationship in Los Angeles. And again, I, I can only speak, I, I understand that I sound like, and probably rightly, like a bitter old spinster because that's exactly what I am. But that's my experience now. It used to be very easy to date here. And even then people would complain that it was hard when I was having a very easy time. And now I'm having a very, very hard time. Like there was a big change in the 2010s, like when Tinder took off. Yeah, they call it, and they call L.A. Los Angeles. Huh. The L.A. bars always had nothing but men. I mean, it's always been a tough town. There's a, the stereotype of it being, everywhere I've gone, you know, I used to work in Hollywood. I was in development. I was working for a production company, and people were like, oh, you must get so much pussy. No, I don't get pussy doing that. I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. People were like, oh, man, you must get so much pussy. No, I don't get any pussy there. It's It's harder than you think. Maybe it's just because I'm not, uh, a naturally charming person when I'm not drinking, but it's you know who knows. There's too many confounding factors for me to know what's what. I'm sure no, probably I, I, probably younger men are having a great time. There's some like thing I'm hearing around from on Twitter from these kind of like from you're from incel types that the economic that there's going to be an economic collapse and that's going to kind of change things. As far that as we were talking my, about, was, yeah, the I've price that, of, the price of pussy is tied to the Dow Jones and real estate market so when there so we need an economic depression to end the pussy depression um who the fuck knows if that's true or not i just i just know that i talk to women a lot and uh, look i love all the women i talk to but some of them aren't exactly uh so you know we're not talking about tens here and they have tons and tons and tons of men nakedly pestering them not just for sex but for videos for love for conversation for the cock of an eyebrow every woman i know has tons and tons of men chasing after her and oh. has tons of stories about everywhere they go convenience store clerks hitting on them everywhere they fucking go and it's over, man. I think I feel like there's a hundred men to every woman woman in this town, and uh, uh, who knows? But I, again, I like it. I don't mean to trash it. I like it a lot here, and that's the one drawback. So the expense, which is manageable now because I make a lot of money, and the the women, which are you know, again. I'm 44 years old. I'm not good looking. I'm a weirdo who writes self-published books called The Pussy. I don't drink. I go to bed at 9.30 p.m. I'm not rich, and I don't live in a happening spot. So all those things might explain why I'm having a hard time. Well, I, and I don't want to self-dox here too much. Well, I, I go under my real name, so maybe that's why I don't want to say too much. But I'll say that I'm 25. Uh, and my experience is largely similar. I've actually been in a long-term relationship now for a few years, so that's been great. But but when I first moved here and the Tinder scene, and just, as you said, what I hear from the women that I know about the way that they have men badgering them online, etc., and this sense of there being a 100 men to every woman um, completely checks out with me, even from a different perspective. So I think it's definitely a very real uh, force in the city. It's shockingly bad. And uh, that's a very important aspect of life. Your romantic life is an important aspect of your life. So for it to be crippled is not healthy. Yeah, you use, like this talk of like geomaxing or cmaxing, as some as some call it. Like you've traveled the world. Like if you yes. had to rank the places you've been 
So you put LA towards the bottom, and then which places you've been towards the top? Is it mostly? I mean, I've mostly been to Southeast ju- Asia. Oh yeah. So that's that's put you know the pussy capital of the planet, the best pussy, the most pussy, the nicest pussy, the pussy that likes you the best is in uh, Southeast Asia, and particularly the Philippines. I know Matt Forney agrees. <laughs> I know, oh, you yeah. know, I, I, I'll say this every time. There's never been a stronger co-brand of man and country than Matt Forney in the Philippines. And I write a lot about the Philippines. <laughs> well, he and had, I, he wrote he, a, a book about it. Yeah, people constantly, every time I mention the Philippines, we're like, oh, Forney was, already, yes, okay. Well, there you have it. I mean, that's a point that he and I agree on. It's very easy to get laid in the Philippines. Yeah, the Southeast Asia. Have you been? How well have you traveled? Have you been to Northeast Asia, Australia, South America, Europe? No, I've been to. So I've been to Japan, um, which is which was very nice, but not uh, didn't slay any ass there. I was there very briefly. I've been to Peru. I've been to Mexico a few times, and that's about it. So, and then in Southeast Asia, I've been to Thailand, Philippines, and Cambodia. Peru is not a pussy-getting country either, or at least, you know, Cusco. And I was there to do touristy shit. I went to Machu Picchu, and I went to the rainforest and stuff. So I wasn't there to get pussy, and it's good because most places where I've been, where I'm, you know, six foot one, blue eyes, long-nosed white man, people do look at you, on girls do check you out on the street. Not in Peru. They're a very proud people, uh, and so they are not, like, you know, hoes like Colombian women or something. What about, very... uh, what about Mexico? Mexico's all right. Uh, you know, again, nobody was checking me out in Mexico either. I was in, I've been in, Me- but I've been in touristy places. I was in Mexico City. I was in, uh, you know, I've been to Tijuana a couple times. And then I've been to uh, Quintana Roo and the cities there. I've been to, you know, Tulum and uh, Playa del Carmen. And uh, I didn't get laid there either, so. Yeah, it does seem that you see this kind of like fusion of what well, used to be more that you had like a left that was more libertine and sure. this fusion of like wokeness, woke puritanism with social conservatism. And there's this big thing now, like there's a like shaming uh, large age gaps, like age gap yeah. hysteria. Well, uh, look, I can't I, they're not exactly wrong. I'm when I'm fucking an impoverished 19-year-old in the Philippines for $6, is that uh, is that something that should be smiled upon by society? Probably not. I probably so I probably deserve their their uh, opprobrium. And I say like look, young yeah. women are hotter than older women. I'm sure young guys are hotter than older guys too, but that's somebody else's job to decide. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. However, as as as, as Patrice O'Neill said, an ugly 19-year-old is better looking than a good-looking 35-year-old. It's actually, you talk about younger men being more attractive. It's, it's way more accepted in the gay community. But, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, whatever. I'm not one of these guys that's going to say, I, I don't need to morally defend my own horniness. Like, I fuck much younger women because I'm a disgusting, horny person, not because, uh, you know, oh, it's normal and traditional in many societies. Don't, you know, who cares? I don't give a fuck what people think. And it's, I'm not on some crusade to justify my own perversions like i just like to fuck teenagers sorry like i do it's and i do it's biological it's a look it's a biological truth but so is the desire to commit murder and that's not right either so i understand that there's some you know look maybe maybe what i'm doing is uh disgusting and wrong i'm not fucking any underage people when i go to these countries because i certainly don't want to fucking end up in a gary glitter tiger cage in some southeast asian country but uh you know, am I, but 19 to 22-year-olds, absolutely. Yeah, well, I don't really, I don't see your work as on any kind of moral crusade to defend that. What I see it as is 
uh, you know, addressing and actually talking about something that a lot of people experience, that kind of attraction or, or what have you, and yeah. a lot of people actually participate in, and, and what your work does is actually talk about it. Yeah, teenage, teenage girls are about a thousand times hotter than uh, older women, and everybody knows it. It's one of those things everyone knows them privately, but you can't say it in polite society. Now, it doesn't mean, look, I love age-appropriate women, and they're beautiful, blah, 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 and I get, you know, I, I would want to have a relationship with somebody that is appropriate for my own age. However, just in terms of raw physical attraction, sorry, like, teenage girls are just hot, and everybody fucking knows it, Sure. What's interesting is looking at these kind of like generational tropes. So it seems that like there's one trope of uh, of a Gen Xer who's in his 40s and 50s and was uh, successful in life early on, and now they're kind of at a stage where they feel washed out. And then with the millennials, the trope is more I don't know, like the incels is kind of a stereotypical millennial trope. I wonder what's going on with younger guys, man. All I see is the despair and and almost like justified misogyny that they feel in the way that women are treating them. I just wonder how much of it is real. Yeah, like, there's got to be some. Somebody's getting pussy out there, right? Somebody. I mean, I, even I, if it's I, one guy. I'm the younger person in the room here. I mean, uh, what was I going to say? Like, um, I, I don't. There's just so many factors as to why uh, it's so hard for millennials and, and younger in my generation. Um, not even just to get laid, but to, you know, have fulfilling relationships, start families. Uh, I mean, obviously, if we look at the stats, we know all these things are uh, in an incredible decline. Um, and it's, you know, some people would say it's the porn. Some yeah, people everything, like the number there, well, you talk, yeah, with, uh, with sex, but also, like, fertility rates are at the lowest. Uh, but suicide, suicide rates, uh, depression, Addiction are increasing, and uh, yeah. that's just we getting worse it, during the pandemic, yeah. but it was already pretty bad. It's like there are all different parts of the elephant, you know, the old metaphor about the blind men and oh, the elephant, yeah. right? Yeah, but okay, so here's what I want to tell people, though. So I get inundated with this kind of depressing bad news all the time, and I'm, and I'm guilty of spreading it, and in fact, I'm guilty of spreading it earlier in this conversation, like no one's ever going to get laid, like women are terrible, nobody ever gets married, nobody has kids. Forget all of that because that's all just that's all just politics too. It's all just society. You as an individual don't have to experience that. There is still hope and there is still a way. You can still have a fulfilling life. And so don't get too bogged down. And one of the things I write about a lot of depressing shit, but my work is not meant to be depressing and it's not meant to make people feel hopeless. It's meant to point out shared frustrations and use a sense of humor while doing so so it's not black pill uh there is beauty in the world and it's possible it's hard look i know it's frustrating to be alone but if it's really a problem get on a you know once this pandemic is over get on a plane somewhere and there are plenty of wonderful women in the world that would be happy to be with you yeah. No, I think that really comes through in your work. I mean, if books that are just black pills, you know, literature yeah. has levels, uh, and yours really goes there in terms of the vacillation between these two sides of, of life. Um, Have really... you uh, read uh, Michelle Welbeck's book, Platform, about geomaxing? Uh, yeah, so Platform was one of the books that I re reread before I wrote Finally Some Good News. 
um, because he obviously has, you know, a lot of finally some good news takes place in Southeast Asia and deals with the Southeast Asian sex trade. And so, and obviously Platform does as well. And uh, look, I love all of Huelbeck's books. I've read all of them, uh, you know, a few times. He's one of the, uh, I think he's the greatest living writer. And Platform, I think... I always read him for tone. I think I took it a little farther with my, you know, chapters on fucking hookers. I I was disappointed in him for using a condom with his tie hooker and in, in when he finally fucks one. Uh, and his is more sort of a uh, he's more open about sort of his philosophical message or his you know economic thoughts in that book. Um, I'm looking more at the emotional weight of it. And my sex trafficking chapter specifically is about how the character goes to the Philippines thinking he's just going to fuck a lot of whores. And then he sees all the other old white men there who are just drained and miserable, which is true. When you go, you know, you you think you're going to go and like, I'm going to go to pussy paradise and live in the jungle and fuck, fuck, uh, you know, these girls that live in huts. And then you see... You know, the girls, them, and you think what you're going to see is like these horrible victimized girls. The girls are actually happy. They're making tons of money. They don't, you know, they're not. They're oh, so the shit. guys are, they seem the, depressed. It's the, it's, the guys are completely miserable. They're not taking any joy in it. Are these just the Americans or have you talked to like the Japanese or Australians? I've not talked to a lot of the Asian guys. The Australians are Australians are so horny. So Southeast Asia is the Tijuana of Australia. Australian men are so horny they put me to shame. Um, some so the younger Australian guys are cool to hang out with. The older guys just sit there like they have strip club eyes on wherever they go. Just these gr- grim grim thousand yard stare faces everywhere you go. And you want to just be like, hey, man, we're about to go get some pussy. Like, we're about to go to a whorehouse. Isn't this fun? And they just look very intent, like it's their job. Like, they're clocking in at the office to fuck today's catamite. It's really uh, it's really sad. Experience? That was your experience in the uh, in Thailand? Well, that- no, I, I, no, I always have fun. I love, first of all, I love the girls. I love talking to them. They have fat. They are fascinating people with incredible senses of humor, great life stories, uh, and I'm a treat for them because I'm not 120 years old. So I still look pretty good. If they have to fuck somebody for money, I'm not such a bad choice. But that's but that's what you noticed amongst the other people there. The other guys, yeah. I see. Because in Wellbeck in in platform, um, Wellbeck seemed. I, I get. I'm trying to remember. He, he does say that there is something of a grim sort of demeanor yes. among some of them but there's also uh, the most memorable part of that book for me uh, well it's very memorable in general but the probably the most memorable scene is a description of like an old german guy getting a lap dance and uh the wellbeck character the main character says something like uh, it was with with great sadness that i realized this was probably the last happy moment of his life or something my favorite scene in that book is when they fuck their maid in cuba I don't know why. Oh yeah. Although he uses yeah. he uses condoms there too. I it, like it's just horrific. How could you? You know. Is there some kind of like French censorship that he's like going to dodge there? Probably not. But can you uh, talk about uh, your work uh, in in Hollywood and both as an assistant and adjacent to social media marketing? And sure. one, I mean, one of the interesting things that uh, kind of a kind of that you you figured out is that everything. 
is created by the economic 1% who are paid to do so. And you kind of mm-hmm. touched on that in the beginning, and the rest of us are just employed in selling it. And a version Correct. of it's probably true just about everywhere and always. was especially yeah. felt in a supposedly creative city like L.A., the struggle that you would describe as a very demanding as a selling other people's creativity, trying to make time for for your own creativity, and yeah. uh, also relates to the theme of work as a slave morality. Well, here's an, first. Let me interject with another great thing about LA, which is that nobody shits on your dream here. So I can go around occasionally and tell people like, "Hey, I'm a self, you know, I have this day job X, Y, and Z, but I'm also a self-published novelist. My books are doing pretty well." And and people aren't like, "Oh, you fucking idiot! That's stupid." They're like, "Oh my god, that's so great!" You know, if you tell per- people that you want to be a great trombone player here, people will will respect your dream and encourage it. So that's a beautiful thing about LA. Uh, I worked in Hollywood for nine years. I did the uh, I did the what's called the development track. So I moved here with a girl. I moved here with my ex fiance, mm-hmm. uh, R.I.P. to her. And uh, I wanted to get a cool job, and I was working here, and I wanted to be a writer. So I thought I wanted to be a screenwriter. Now I've never written like word one of a screenplay, but uh, I got an internship working at a production company, and then I, I worked at an agency desk, and uh, I did. So in Hollywood, to become a producer or to become a you know studio executive or whatever, you have to start out doing these long slogs, answering phones at an agency. And this is just kind of uh, hypothetical, or could, just how like our economic system uh, functions and the culture yeah. too. But would ideally, would there be some kind of UBI for quality, qualified artists and bloggers? I think that uh, the government should give me money. Look, the Amer- the American. America is is an economically right-wing society. There is never going to be uh, a welfare state that helps men, that helps young men who should be out there busting their humps. There's a sort of a niche welfare state with like single moms, but there's not a broader welfare state like a strong UBI that benefits everyone. That's right, and I don't think there ever will be. But who knows? Again, I can't I can't place any bets on the future of our society. I would love for there to be a UBI. Um, can we afford it? Who knows? I think there's too many. Like every time you mention any expansion of the welfare state, there are people are such passionate nerds about their right wing economic beliefs. Like people really, really believe in Ayn Rand shit like a religion. It's they're zealots about it. I think to some degree, like an economic collapse is a co- is a cope, and we could very yeah. well just get a continuation, like what Wellbeck said, that will just it'll just be the same and shittier, more continuation of like trends of just just a shittier society more income inequality but i do yeah. think like a hard economic collapse would wake up people economically the way that feminists would be strapping explosive vests to themselves if there was some kind of government program to give men pussy uh right-wing economic nerds would literally commit suicide bombings to protect ayn rand capitalism like it's not like practical but ideally yeah. ideally like immigration policy should favor like young women absolutely we should be importing uh you know wife material absolutely we should uh, you know we should definitely we should definitely have a pipeline from the philippines colombia and i'm not even kidding here it would make the country much happier as it would uh put you know put american women spiritually better in their place it would get rid of the incel problem the men would have to clean themselves up to actually be presentable to a goddamn woman instead of giving up it would be better in every way 
And plus, it would spite uh, other countries. <laughs> it would be great. That plus the UBI. Someone, if someone were to run yeah. for office, neither neither of those things is ever happening. For the young men that are out there, a thing that I wish I had done now that I'm in my old age is for all my leftist economic views that I pushed for and pushed for and pushed for. Uh, it was all horseshit. It's not ever going to happen in our lifetimes. So start prudently saving and investing some money now in your youth. Get as much money as you can and retire as early as possible. That is my advice to young people. Yeah, it's personal advice. That's good advice. And then probably, but as far as policy, we'll probably end up, probably end up with like woke austerity. There's no, who cares? Like the, the federal government doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, but yeah, that's the thing is like you have to kind of carve out your your own path with your yourself or or a group of people. Like you can't go it's just psychologically unhealthy yeah. to to be so emotionally invested in politics. City parking regulations are a lot more meaningful than anything passed by the United States Senate. Yeah. But I guess okay, I do want to say this about Hollywood. I mean, uh, again, I don't we don't necessarily need to talk about that much. Um, I'm just curious because you've – and I've listened to some of your other interviews and obviously read your work where you've talked about this. What you've ended up doing in life is kind of taking the path where you, the, your creativity and the way you earn money are entirely separate spheres, which yeah. in the long run probably is the healthier route. probably is what I'll end up doing. Um, in the short term, I'm still kind of trying, however, you know, to fight the uphill battle, so to speak. What are like, you doing? Um well, I still have some, I guess, some aspirations in, you know, the screenwriting direction. Okay. Um, That's which, a fucking hard road, man. Yeah. Um, you know, right, I... Dude, write the book first. Write, yeah. write, write the book first and do it your way and then figure out the screenplay after. I actually, well, funny you should say, not, not, give me an opportunity to shill here. And Robert and I both did want to do this before. Yeah, we both have. Matt has his debut book coming up in uh, early next year. And I also have my the sequel to my first book coming up soon. And the sequel to my first book, uh, it takes place in California. It has Welbeckian themes, like similar themes to your work. And uh, I don't want to give away the plot, but it's more... The writing styles, I mean, the writing style's a bit different, but it's a surreal dark comedy. Right on. Yeah, and then mine is coming out with, uh, on Matt Forney's press, actually, Terror House. Nice. And yeah, he's done, a, he's done a great job. Matt Forney is an interesting cat, because he's been around longer than me, and he's about 15 years younger than me. And he's, uh, he's reinvented himself ten times since I've known of him. And this new, I think he's finally found, I think he's found his groove tapping into uh, publishing yeah. people's books, right? I mean, oh, he's, yeah, it's he's, great what he's oh, doing. putting out good shit. Yeah, yeah it's great. He's with Terror House. Uh, yeah, I think it's the first one. Like, he's He's been relatively successful, and he's also providing a platform for a lot of these like excellent under-the-radar uh, writers. Yeah, and I wonder like, how he's doing you know, that. I mean, like, I, wonder, I wonder how those books are selling. Um, I wonder if he, you know, who knows? Because, the, again, the economics of book sales are not great he works with uh yeah he works with matt lawrence who is uh the graphic designer who worked on all my books i think he also works with owen cyclops who designed who drew uh the unicorn for my latest book so he's working with a lot of people that i like and respect and it's great news but i don't read a lot of people's self-published books either because uh i only want to read shit that's better than me you know i i want to read shit that i can aspire to um, 
not to say that I don't know, you know, these books could be great, but like I'm older than these guys. So I think that, um, you know, I, I, I need to read books by either Michelle Huelbeck or some dead people to serve as an intermediary between them and the next, the next class. I get what you mean for sure. I mean, I I don't, I I don't read a ton of self-published books. I try to, because I want to be supportive to other people who are trying to do what I'm trying to do. So there's that element. There's like, you know, doing it out of a a sense of, of, of obligation or something. But, um, not, I'm not trying to flatter you here, but I, I think what, what I always said about your books when I was trying to get other people to read them. Now, I only got into your work about a year ago. Right. Um, it feels like longer. But um, I, I, you know, I've tried to read a lot of like books that have come out of Twitter, and like most of them, frankly, aren't very good. But I, right. I do think your work uh, really transcends the medium. I, I agree. My shit is good. Thank you. <laughs> I don't want to jack myself off, but I work really hard on it, and uh, I've been doing it for a long time, and I work hard to make it the best that I can. There's there's not a lot that's sloppy or impulsive about what I put out, and I do try to not identify too strongly with any given scene or any given moment because I'm trying to do something that is... I I was about to say for the ages, which sounds like a complete jerk-off, but... I'm trying to I'm trying to create like real legitimate books. I'm doing my best. Now there there is some amateurish shit about them, but it, the, you know you're tr- there's a you're walking a fine line first because you got to be who you are, and a lot of r- so-called real books are are prissy and boring and tame. So I think the ideal book is something that is exciting and and uh, you know horny and has real emotion in it, but still the person has taken the time to develop their skills as a writer so that the most important people's ideas don't matter at all. Nobody really has any good or new ideas. People's prose ability matters 100%. And most of the stuff that I read, uh, like if you don't have a good first sentence, suck my dick. You owe it to the reader to absolutely kill with your first sentence. Now, I'm not saying it has to be, you know, it just like you have to want to read the second sentence, right? Your last sentence also has to be perfect. You have to perfect your last sentence. And then you need one beat in the middle at the end of Act 2 that has to be perfect. And if you can get those three things, then you're pretty much there. However, a lot of the shit I read has a really boring first sentence that's just really expository setting shit up is trusting me to have patience to read through an entire paragraph which nobody has you have to create a little suspense so post office charles bukowski's post office it began as a mistake that's the first sentence what you know that's that's an example right Um, yeah no i'm I'm pretty sure what you're saying is exactly what they try to teach in mfa programs too Uh, that that basic notion so you're saving uh, saving all of robert's listeners uh money on an MFA. I mean, I, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, what you're describing is the basic building blocks of a good story, and it's really not that complicated. You just have to learn how to do it. As and that is, that is something that I really learned in Hollywood. I needed a, a structure, um, and I learned story structure a lot in Hollywood from taking scripts apart and putting them back together. And it could be the worst, uh, it could be the worst like animated kids movie ever, but 
structure is pretty um and of course you know it's all, it's all well and good to be experimental and go off of whatever but like basic basically the, the the basics of structure have nothing to do with the quality of the story overall it's right. it's kind of a mechanical thing you have to overlay it's and it just makes it easier you you know you recognize where you need to put certain beats and it just makes everything fucking easier like finally some good news kind of has a 3x structure and uh i'm glad because it certainly needed something to hold it together yeah, like there's something about that three act structure that's just like totally inherent to, I you know it's like it's so ingrained in the way that humans tell stories that like you can try and escape from it, but if you're thinking of a story, it's probably going to have some kind of three act structure, beginning, a middle, and end. I so, also I think the Hollywood development way of teaching it is a lot better than the stupid like hero's journey graph, <laughs> like Joseph Campbell and all this other bullshit. Yeah, that also I'd say I've learned through Hollywood is just um, for as much as I. For as, for as many of the awful things to do with Hollywood have to do with the fact that it's, you know, entirely commercial, that's also where you can learn some of the most important lessons is just the raw, you know, way of giving people what they want. Yeah, and a great a great screenplay is a great thing to read. Yeah. Um, great dialogue is great to read, and it really pulls you through it a lot faster than trudging through prose. So that's, I sort of learned, I, I think to an extent, I kind of learned pacing from screenplays too. Like, I try to make my stuff rip you you rip through it right and you get that this the same the same feeling as reading a screenplay before we wrap up the show uh tacos uh do you have any upcoming projects you want to plug well i'm working on another novel that's probably not going to be out for two years it's called true love um and i'm in the very early stages of writing it so that's going to be the big one that's you know that's the the finally some good news is a short novel and this is going to be a longer one and a bigger one um, you know, Savage Spear of the Unicorn is still a pretty new book. I don't know. Go to deliciousTacos.com. My Twitter is delicious underscore tacos. If you fucking Google delicious tacos, you'll fucking find all my shit. Go read it. Um, and if you like me, then if you're a woman, have sex with me. And if you're a man, <laughs> give, me, give me money. Uh, delicious Tacos. <laughs> it's been an excellent show. And uh, check out his and check out his work. I'd recommend it. Thanks.